Welcome. I'm Helena Wooten, data lawyer and privacy laws and business correspondent. Welcome to this edition of PLMB's Privacy Paths podcast, the second on the experience of companies which have spent a year in the UK Information Commissioner's regulatory sandbox. So do check out our other podcast on the sandbox. So today we'll show how the ICO sandbox is working after the end of the first year and we'll be meeting a participant from the first cohort of companies and hearing of their experience in the sandbox. So what is the regulatory sandbox? The ICO's regulatory sandbox is a process which supports its participants in developing new and innovative products and services, all which demonstrate public benefit. It's an environment where an organisation can explore ideas outside of conventional tech and privacy norms. And the ICO's starting point is to show to a sometimes doubtful tech community and their investors that innovation and privacy can be developed together. So what can companies and the privacy community learn from the experience of those who participated in the sandbox? Well, today, we're delighted to be joined by two speakers, Chris Taylor from the ICO and Vadim Sobolovsky from Futureflow. To start, I'll ask each speaker to introduce themselves, to tell me more about your role in relation to the ICO sandbox. So Chris, if I could ask you to start. Hi, and, and good morning, everyone. Um, so yeah, I'm Chris Taylor. I'm one of ICO's heads of assurance. Um, and I look after a range of things at the ICO, all to do with supporting upstream compliance like our regulatory sandbox. Thank you, Chris. And Vadim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My name is Vadim Sobolevsky, and I'm the co-founder of Futureflow, uh, responsible both for corporate strategy of the firm and also technical development of the product. Great. And Vadim has been spending a year in the um, regulatory sandbox, so we'll hear about that during today's podcast. I want to also welcome Stuart Dresner, founder Hello. of PLMV. Thank you for joining us today, Stuart. I'm sure Stuart will have some great insights and questions to ask um, today's speakers. So Futureflow was one of only 10 companies selected by the ICO to participate in its sandbox in the first year. So today we'll be speaking to Chris and Vadim of their experiences from both the perspective of the ICO and obviously a tech company in the sandbox. There has been a report issued by the ICO, which is really interesting reading for all tech companies. So I'd encourage everyone to have a look at that. So, Chris, in our previous conversations, we talked about the sandbox and the valuable insight into its workings. You gave that. Thank you. So as a reminder for those who haven't heard the previous podcast or don't know much about the sandbox, what was the ICO's aim in creating it? Sure. So, I mean, I think the idea for creating the sandbox stems back to our tech and innovation strategy from three or four years ago now. Um, and our commissioner, and I think the ICO more broadly, had recognized that clearly regulators need to have mechanisms to ensure that they're able to keep pace with technology, keep pace with innovation, uh, and to be able to understand how to regulate uh, in that context. So we had a wider innovation and tech strategy that was all about trying to address that challenge and trying to make sure that we could show that innovation and privacy can, can go together. Um, and the sandbox is one of our mechanisms, one of our ways of doing that. And it provides us a, a mechanism, as you described in the introduction, to be able to get close to innovators, understand, try and develop our own understanding of some of the challenges they face, um, and actually get some great learnings out of that for, for the wider privacy community as, as well. So it fits in with that broader tech and innovation objective. 
Yeah, sounds like a great way of getting close to tech companies and really understanding. Um, so what are the highlights for you, Chris, of the sandbox? What do you get from it generally? Um, other than a few more grey hairs, um, <laughs> I guess um, we as an organisation get um, a fantastic insight into a really wide range of emerging technologies um, and exciting new areas where personal data is playing a really important role in benefiting the wider public. Um, so everything from the work we've done with Vadim on uh, fighting financial crime through to work we're doing in London around um, harm reduction and violent crime um, through to work we've done um, with Onfide that we spoke about last uh, in the last podcast around um, uh, working to eliminate um, bias within within algorithms. So getting that breadth of, of insight into topics and enabling to use that to inform our positions and inform our thinking going forward is huge, hugely beneficial. And so what's the criteria for selecting participants in the sandbox? Yeah, so we have um, three kind of core criteria, really, um, which are around the extent to which the product or service is, is innovative. Um, this is a service that is aimed to be working with people that are doing things that are that are in some, some sense at the cutting edge. Um, the product and service needs to be clearly and demonstrably in the wider public interest. Um, fairly broadly conceived, but in clearly there being wider benefits to the public. Um, and then speaking quite honestly, we need to have um, there to be some genuine data protection challenges with the products and service that we're dealing with. Um, the sandbox is designed to operate, as you said at the start, in some of the more challenging areas of data protection application. And we, we recognize that and it's a, it's a mechanism to help us with that. So there needs to be that combination of challenge, public benefit, and innovation and actually we've got some practical things as well we as a regulator need to be comfortable that we've actually got the resources and ability um, to support to support these innovations because by very by definition there may be some things that are actually out with of our current capacity to deal with so it's a, it's a mixture of a mixture of those things yeah great no, that's helpful for anyone looking to come into the uh, to the sandbox um so i'm going to move now to to vadim thank you again for joining us vadim do you want to give us um an overview of, of future flow what does it do um what are your aims and objectives sure so uh, just to give you a brief idea of, of where we come from and what we do um future flow was started really out of a very simple vision uh the vision that money is interesting it's this idea that money is interesting in its own right and independently of the entities who spend it. So it's a bit hard to think about this, but an example, uh, let's, let's just talk about an example. Let's just imagine you take out a fiver out of your pocket. Imagine being able to tell everything that this fiver has done through its lifetime, right? So obviously it's, you know, it's physical cash, so it doesn't matter that much because only about 1% of the money we use is physical. Uh, but imagine being able to do this with electronic money at its scale, right? This is kind of where future flow started, where, where its roots are coming from. Um, and if we continue with this physical example, because it's easier to talk about this, there are two important takeaways from this example. Uh, one is that this information that you may be able to know about this five pound bill is, um, you know, it's worth something, it's valuable, right? It's hard to say upfront what exactly for, but it's not useless entirely, right? Uh, and importantly, so that value, which we we'll call the informational value of money, um, is independent from its monetary value, right? So the fiber is worth five pounds, but it's worth a little bit more if we knew more about it, right? So this is the monetary value, which is the first important concept uh, of what Future Flow stands for. 
And the second uh, most valuable concept, which I think is much more relevant to this discussion today, is that this information is independent of the entity that holds the money, right? So the fiber belongs to you, but it actually doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. You know, you, you got it from somebody else, you will spend it on something and it will continue, right? So you're just, uh, you know, a one stop, if you will, on the overall journey of, on the, of this piece of paper. And it's the same with electronic money, right? The fact that we think that we have a money, you know, we have money in our bank account, we think of it as ours, but in reality, it comes from somewhere and then it goes somewhere. So when you think of this at a big picture level, if you will, you can see intuitively how it tremendously diminishes the value of a personal identity, so to speak, whether it's an individual identity or an entity identity, right? Basically, the grand scheme of things, if you have an understanding of what money, so to speak, is doing in an economy, um, you will care a lot less about the entities that are actually spending it in order to have an intellectual view of what's happening in an economy. This is where future flow comes from. So it started off as a very sort of abstract hmm. concept, but when we started digging deeper into it, we found it very interesting. So we wanted to develop it a little bit further. And we actually ended up forming a company to do that. And when we did, um, when this was still at the pure sort of concept stage, we spent quite a bit of time engaging with the financial services community and trying to understand where would this have kind of an immediate practical application? What, what is the most interesting and relevant use case, if you will, for something that is a, a purely abstract idea? Yeah, it's and very conceptual, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and much to our surprise, what we found from virtually every single conversation that we've had in the industry, with the industry, is, uh, is financial crime, you know. Every single conversation would come back to the to the issue of financial crime. And this was very surprising to us because neither of us, the two co-founders, come from the financial crime analytics background. So this was very new to us. And so, again, we started to dig, dig deeper and trying to understand what is it about our concept that makes people so excited about it, specifically in relation to fighting financial crime. And once we researched the problem, first of all, we were completely fascinated by how, just how big and how serious the problem is, you know, we're talking about trillions of dollars laundered annually across the world. Right. Um, the problem costing billions, you know, tens of billions, of, if not hundreds of billions to the banking community to deal with um, and to, to, to really poor results, right? We're talking about only a few percentage points of that ever being detected, right? So it was kind of news to us, even though both of us come from the financial services background, the magnitude and the severity of the problem was, I must say, new. Yeah. Um, but what was clear to us is that the main pain point, if you will, that a technology like this, if it existed, uh, would help to address is this idea that it can bring the financial community together um, in its ability to fight the problem jointly. Because everybody recognizes that financial crime is a distributed phenomenon, right? Criminals okay. take advantage of, um, of there being multiple banks, you know, being able to move their money around, to conceal right. their identity, to conceal their networks. But the financial services community, every single bank, every single financial institution um, is forced to work in isolation to fight the problem. So everybody recognizes that it's sort of, you know, there's this big motto out there, takes a network to defeat the network. Yeah. The financial community has to come together in order to deal with what is essentially a networked and distributed phenomenon. But it's very hard to do. And it's very hard to do specifically because we're used to uh, dealing with the problem at an identity level, right? When it comes to okay. financial crime, we only think in concepts of either an entity identity or personal identity, right? right. That's okay. why we have terms like KYC, you know, know your customer, 
CDD, yeah. customer due diligence. It's all about your customer, right? Going yeah. back to the fiber example, yeah. it's all about us, right? We are the ones holding yeah. the, the piece you, of paper. If, and if you know your customer, then you can identify them and you can find the cause of the crime. Or, or Exactly. But the problem is yeah. that if you know your customer, how do you tell to your peer institution across the street that you have a problem, right? Mm. Because that's personal information, right? So if you operate only at the level of your customer data, then it's very hard to share. However, if you develop a technology that allows us to think about how money moves around, conceptually speaking, at a very precise uh, and, uh, and scalable way, then the, the concept of a customer becomes a lot less important. If you can see the big picture, then it's a lot easier to work uh, and to analyze the overall monetary flow across the banking community without actually caring that much about who the underlying customers are. Right. right. So the, 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 the operating model, if you will, that we have conceived is this idea yep. that each financial institution participating in this platform can keep its sensitive customer information to itself, but to somehow exchange the data about the overall flow of funds, right? So customer information okay. stays within the walls of each bank, yep. but the overall big picture can be built by these banks working together. And that's what we set out to develop. Right. Amazing. So you have software. How does it work? I mean, obviously not without giving away too much information, but how does the software work and what does it do and um, how does it achieve the, the aims of reducing financial crime or highlighting financial crime? Right. So, so the Futureflow platform essentially works as a, as a cross-bank industry utility. It's a neutral platform uh, in which many financial institutions can participate and contribute their pseudonymized transactional data uh, in such a way which enables the central institution to spot various uh, areas of concern, uh, either proactively or reactively in response to an incident, um, by seeing a bigger picture. So in other words, the idea is that each bank participating in the platform can benefit from the overall collective knowledge of the entire banking community participating in the platform without necessarily having to contribute any of the sensitive customer information. Great. And tell us about your experience of working in the sandbox and how that develop, helped develop and helped understand the concepts. Because I've read the report. Um, obviously, there's a big one of the objectives was about identifying who the controller is, processor, whether they were joint controllers. Um, so, so tell us about your experience in the in the sandbox and how it helped. Sure. So we were very excited when we first uh, discovered the ICO sandbox. So first of all, just to give you a bit of background, when we started uh, the company, it was before GDPR was around. Um, so we, we've always known that if 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 this were a real product, then it would have to serve. It would have to, to sort of solve two problems. One, it has to be a, a technology solution, right? In other words, something that actually makes things work at a technological level. But two, it has also to be a regulatory solution, right? It's, it's something that has to enable things to actually work in practice in a compliant and, um, you know, in a way acceptable to society, so to speak. So we've always known that we have to be, um, you know, the regulators, the relevant regulators have to be aware of what we try to do. Uh, but at that time, um, our intuitive understanding what was that it was the FCA that is the most relevant regulator. So we've from the very beginning, we've made quite a bit of efforts uh, to efforts to try to establish a relationship with the FCA, and we have a great relationship with the FCA. We're actually part of the FCA sandbox back in 2018, uh, which was our first experience of dealing very closely with the regulator. Yeah. Um, and uh, so this was just at the time when GDPR was, was about to be introduced, if I remember correctly. And yeah. one thing that we noticed um, throughout our experience with the FCA was that 
it was actually not really a financial regulation that was most the most relevant subject of our interaction, but rather the, the data related aspect. Uh, and 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 what was really clear to us is was that on all fronts, the FCA was always trying to refer us to the ICO because it was it was basically everything relating to data is outside of their remit. But fortunately, they were close enough with the ICO to be able to help us in terms of references, in terms of, sort of casually sending us to the right people, etc. And just around that time, we started hearing about the possibility that once the GDPR was introduced, that the ICO will eventually also launch its own sandbox. And so it was very clear to us that if we ever hear about this, that would be a very natural place for us to morph into, considering all yeah. of the things that we had already learned at the FCA, but also all of the things that we haven't had a chance to explore, considering that the data aspect is really outside of the FCA's remit. Yeah, and I'm curious about Chris's view on the FCA sandbox and to what extent you had inspiration from that and to what extent you might share knowledge um, more generally and in particular in the future flow uh, instance. Yeah, so I don't think we are um, shy of saying that we took a lot of inspiration from the FCA's uh, yeah. sandbox. Um, and in fact, we've got good relationships with the with the FCA on a number of levels, on a number in a number of different areas. And as we were designing our sandbox, we had lots of conversations with them about the lessons that they'd learned from their sandbox and what they were trying to do. Uh, the sandboxes are actually quite different. They've ended up quite different okay. in that obviously the FCA have a actual rule, uh, actual role in um, in authorizing access to the market, um, and that's not something that ICO does. Um, so there are there, there are different. There are different dimensions to it, but in terms of the concepts and how it works, then yeah, we 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 did talk to them quite a lot in the in the development of it. Um, we don't coordinate on behalf of participants with other regulators, um, particularly. We expect the participants to essentially manage that regulatory interface themselves. Um, but certainly, when we look at applications, one of the things we ask about is. Are, are you in contact with other relevant regulators? Are there are there things that you're working through with those regulators to make sure that we've got visibility? And we've got a really good relationship with FCA. So if we ever do need to pick up the phone, then, then we we can and we and we do. Yeah, great, Stuart. Yeah, I, I think uh, the um, FCA was an ideal partner for you because there is a formal memorandum of understanding between the ICO and the FCA. So that means that uh, when uh, Forward Future Flow came to you, there was a natural path because they had already established the credentials of Future Flow. They're a serious candidate. So that I expect that that meant that there was an easier path to your door and that you were um, willing to take on a subject which you are not normally familiar with very much. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, um, when we were talking about the criteria before, innovation, public benefit, all of those kinds of previous experience that people might have had with other regulators all, all helps in terms of us understanding where an organization is coming from and how we can work with them. So yeah, no, it's all it's all good. Great, thank you. So Vadim, coming back to your practical experience, what changes did you make as a result of any of the uh, suggestions from, from the ICO and, and what, what resulted from the sandbox experience? So in terms of the, the overall sort of big picture design of the platform, uh, fortunately, we didn't have to make a lot of changes because uh, it just so happened that uh, whatever we were learning from from our interaction with the ICO actually validated most of the ways in which the the, the platform was built originally. Uh, however, um, we did have to make quite a few tweaks here and there 
in in response to some of the things that we were learning throughout the sandbox. Uh, and it could be really something as simple as, you know, the way certain things are logged, for example. You know, some things you don't, because the ICO makes you a lot more rigorous um, in thinking about things like, um, you know, DPIA, for example, uh, various policies and procedures that you have to have in place. You realize that some of the things, or we realize that, that some of the things um, that we had in, in, in the platform were a little too casual for that because we just hadn't given it enough thought. Uh, it just wasn't rigorous enough to to be kind of, um, how should I say, you know, ICO already. Right? Yeah. Fortunately, yeah. it was nothing major, but, uh, but, 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 but it was very helpful to know. But the most, uh, I would say the most significant impact of our interaction uh, with the ICO and, and how it impacted the way we sort of think about our system is is just um, the guidance from the ICO and how to think about the data that we that we operate on. Because okay. when we first came into the sandbox, we had a bit perhaps a slightly naive, if you will, expectation that our main goal from the ICO is to sort of conclude jointly that just because the data that we operate on that we want to operate on has got has undergone such significant amount of uh, obfuscation, pseudonymization, etc. We're just hoping that it will all be concluded that it's not personal data, even if it relates to individuals, which in most cases it doesn't, but we sort of assume the worst case. So our main hope was that, well, we'll just conclude that this is not personal data, so the, the system works and, and it's all good. Uh, and, and how did course, that work out? <laughs> and of course, one of the first things that the ICO concluded is that this is actually personal data. Yeah. No, matter, no matter what you throw at it, this is personal data. So you have to pseudonymized data. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so you have to think about, or we have to think jointly about whether this still makes sense. And I would say from my perspective, um, the outcome of the sandbox, um, even though it was perhaps less easier than we first expected, which would be just a simple judgment, this not personal data, so it's all fine. But the outcome is actually a lot more valuable because I would say it's a lot more rigorous, right? It's, it's a very rigorous analysis of how um, this, this architecture may actually work at a national level, um, even if you assume that everything in it is personal data. Right, and so what I'm quite happy uh, to have as an outcome of this is is this what we call a two tier, uh, almost like a two tier architecture, okay. uh, which enables a cross bank transaction monitoring utility to work at a national scale, in a jurisdiction that is subject to the GDPR. So that's 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 an outcome that I think uh, at least we are um, very proud of. Wonderful. And what are the two tiers? So, so the two tiers. So, so essentially, so let me just take a step back here and explain what is the main um, what is the main difficulty here. And this is not just a difficulty for us. I think this is a difficulty for any society that is trying to enable a more effective and um, cooperative, if you will, uh, system to fight financial crime. The problem is that. Um, in, in, in virtually every jurisdiction, not just the, those subject to the GDPR, but generally speaking, kind of the, your, your typical Western regulatory architecture, um, yes, financial we all recognize that financial institutions are better off working together and sharing information to fight financial crime. Uh, but the difficulty is that you have this vir vicious cycle, if you will, because uh, the existing sharing regimes, for the most part, enable you to share data when you already have suspicion. Right. So in other words, um, you find suspicion first. If you feel like others in your banking community or the regulators may benefit from your knowledge, then there is a path to sharing it. But the problem, of course, is that we recognize that these institutions would be a lot more effective in finding that suspicion jointly in the first place. 
right? So how do you how do you break this vicious cycle? How do you work together in the first place as, at what we call with ICO at the pre-suspicion level, right? Because the difficulty here is that it requires a much wider um, field of um, of sharing, right? So to speak. So how do you how do you share data on a much wider level at a pre-suspicion level uh, in order to jointly find suspicion and only then enable a much more comprehensive and detailed information sharing on the pockets of suspicion. So this is, I think, was this is this was the most um, fruitful, if you will, for us at least. And I think we 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 get quite a lot of feedback from. Uh, from other jurisdictions in which we're uh, we're quite active, I think this is probably the most um, uh, effective uh, outcome of of our year worth cooperation is this um, conceptual two tier framework which enables the system to work quite broadly without having suspicion, right? And and jointly identify the pockets of suspicion, and by doing that, enable a more detailed and more comprehensive but focused information sharing just on the on those areas of suspicion. So this is something that we certainly couldn't have imagined uh, prior to our experience uh, in the sandbox. And I'm very glad that that's what came out. Yes. Yeah, Adam, you, you mentioned about uh, reaching out to regulators in other countries. Um, which other countries are you approaching any national data protection authorities? Uh, for example, well, in Germany, it would be at the land level, uh, probably in Frankfurt, Hesse, mm -hmm. uh, but it may be Switzerland as well, which is called another major financial center. And uh, we, we can't f forget New York and the United States, which is obviously another major financial center. And then there's Singapore. So have you been reaching out to any of these uh, privacy or data protection regulators in any of these other jurisdictions. So, so in in everything that we do, you always have to be aware of how a specific regime works in terms of developing its efforts of a joint up um, uh, anti financial crime approach. Because in some jurisdictions, you would see a top down approach where the regulator is trying to spearhead the initiative and. Um, and push it on, if you will, onto the financial services community. But in other jurisdictions, it's bottom-up, right? It's the financial services community coming together itself and then trying to push the initiative up all the way up towards almost like national legislative changes and, and data protection, disc open discussions, etc. So as an example of, I would say, a bottom-up um, initiative, if you look at a country like the Netherlands, where um, just, just uh, this summer, We've had a formal announcement that the five Dutch banks actually formally came together and launched a, essentially a public-private partnership that will be doing joint transaction monitoring at a national scale, right? So this is an example of a bottom-up uh, effort where the private sector essentially is coming together and is trying to identify um, what needs to be done at the national legislature level and at the data protection level in order to make this work, right? In other jurisdictions, it may work Top down. So, for example, in Australia, um, Austrac, which is the um, the Australian Financial Intelligence Unit, is currently thinking of a system which will enable it to cooperate with the largest banks in Australia in terms of um, sharing transactional data and trying to understand uh, the, the sort of shared topologies of financial crime, etc. So, in that example, so this is an example of a top down initiative. Um, so, and again, of course, Australia is not subject to the GDPR, but nevertheless. Even we find that even every single jurisdiction that is not subject to the GDPR, they're aware, they're very aware of it, and they usually use it as a kind of a standard um, to think around and how that may apply to their jurisdiction. 
which is exactly okay. what the European Commission wanted, that the GDPR should be regarded as a gold standard to be rippling around the world. And indeed it has, as you say, even when there's not a law which directly copies it, it's, it's influential even in Nigeria and uh, many other Absolutely. countries. Absolutely. So in all, of the, in all of the discussions we have in Australia, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, in the United States to some extent, um, as I said, these are the jurisdictions that don't have a GDPR equivalent, but they're certainly very aware of it. And, and it gives them the vocabulary, if you will, the structure around which to have a debate, which is very helpful and didn't exist before. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating to hear of your experiences and the global nature of your, of your software and your business, Vadim. Thank you. So as you've come now to the end of your year in the sandbox, um, what, how will you continue beyond the sandbox, you know, post sandbox life? What does that look like for future flow? And I noticed in the report there is almost a, not an obligation, but there is a, a, a strong suggestion that future flow continue with the lessons that were learned, you know, the DPIAs, the ROPA, all, all of those things, which I'm guessing was very valuable hearing it from the ICO. Um, so how are you, you going to live your post sandbox life well, first, yeah first of all i hope that our um relationship with the ico evolves along the same lines that our relationship with the fca has evolved after this the fca sandbox because now that we're what uh, two and a half years out of the fca sandbox i'm happy to say that uh, we're actually probably even closer with the fca now that we were back during the sandbox you know we've been in their two tech sprints we were actually just part of the of, of helping them to design the fca data sprint which they literally just launched um i think last week uh, so it's a very uh, it's a very constructive i'm happy to say relationship and i certainly hope that we continue that way with the ico uh, as you as you can imagine from the comments that i was just making about all of these different initiatives that are taking place in various jurisdictions around the world um, this is a very exciting time for a company like ours because we have built our platform um, in a bit of a forward-looking fashion, as in we built it before the world was ready for it. Um, and we're quite happy to see the world literally coming um, to the realization that uh, this is perhaps the right approach to, to fighting the problem. So there's certainly quite a lot of initiatives in this country. You know, we have the new economic crime plan, et cetera. But um, as I mentioned, you, know, you can think about jurisdictions like Sweden, Denmark, Netherlands, Finland, um, which is which is all kind of the GDPR land. But away from here, you can imagine Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, uh, Hong Kong, uh, some of the countries in the in the Gulf region. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Abu Dhabi. You, you basically yeah. the yeah. Emirates, etc. These are these are all the jurisdictions where I think our work is becoming more and more topical uh, throughout. Uh, literally. Well, basically now. And so yeah. what we hope is that the learnings that we have taken away from the ICO sandbox um, will help us to become almost like a like a front person, if you will, for the ICO. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times it's not just us presenting these findings. It's, it's us essentially um, demonstrating our joint work. Right. So so that's that's how I hope yeah. we will continue. And, and Chris, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been really interesting um, listening to Vadim there. And it's, as with as with Onfido, some of the same motivations and challenges and things that we're looking to get out of the experience are exactly the same for us. Um, we The issue of, of sharing data in, in terms of pre-suspicion is something that is talked about a lot within the UK finance industry and that we're, we're aware of through other channels. So the opportunity to work with an organization like Vadim that have got a 
a product that is looking to directly address those challenges um, helps us you know understand those challenges and think about broader learnings that will enable us to you know contribute to trying to essentially fight 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 financial crime um, in a way that's compliant with with data protection legislation so very similar benefits actually yeah brilliant Stuart yeah um Chris um obviously Vadim's mentioned about uh, having conversations with regulators in many countries I wonder whether that's been reflected on your side with conversations with other data protection regulators in other countries um when he goes and speak to banks in the Netherlands to the Netherlands authority for example come and speak to you and you exchange information um perhaps not only in Europe but in other countries and we have to remember that Elizabeth Denham uh, commissioner is also head of the global privacy assembly and I would imagine that facilitates that uh, exchange of information at the international level so how does that work for, for the ICO yeah we, I mean we're seeing um, increasing international interest in sandboxes generally but regulatory sandboxes in the data in the data protection space in particular as well um, there's an OECD report that's either just a, just come out or just about to come out on regulatory sandboxes, which leans heavily on the experiences from from the UK, but also from other from other regulators, and I'd, I'd recommend having a look at that if, if people can get hold of it. Um, we we are talking other DPAs contact us fairly regularly to talk about um, the work that we're doing. Um, one of the ones that I'm I think is public and is therefore okay for me to to reference. Um, we've been talking a lot to um, to Norway actually recently, um, who are who are developing a sandbox particularly focused on AI, um, and we've been sharing and exchanging lessons, even materials in terms of how we actually run things internally. Um, so we we we're keen to see it as an opportunity for international collaboration, to be honest. And perhaps some point in the future, there's an ambition to think about cross jurisdictional sandboxes um, working across different regimes. Um, that's probably a next a next level of complexity for us over the next over the next few years. Yeah, software knows no borders, so uh, Indeed, data protection, yeah. data Indeed. sharing. So I think that's a great, great idea. Um, I think yeah, just I think Norway is a very good partner because they're well resourced. They've certainly been leaders uh, on the in the area of connected uh, dolls and connected toys and so on, uh, which their consumer organisation has worked on, and we've reported on that in privacy laws and business reports. Also, the Norwegian commissioner used to be head of the consumer organisation, so he knows. Um, a lot about both sides. So I think this working together of the data protection regulators and the consumer regulators is a very powerful, potent force for the future. Thank you. So, so we're going to come to a close fairly soon. Um, Chris and, and Vadim, actually, what um, would your recommendations be to organisations who are thinking about um, joining the ICO sandbox or applying to uh, be part of, of this in the future? Vadim? So first of all, I would strongly encourage uh, innovative uh, data-centric companies to uh, seriously consider the ICO sandbox. And I would particularly highlight here just how inclusive and objective the ICO, perhaps it's a self-serving comment, but but from our perspective, objective, um, the ICO uh, has made an effort to be, because obviously we're, we're a very small organization and you know we find ourselves in the sandbox uh, along the lines of the giants like Heathrow Airport and Novartis Pharmaceuticals and the NHS. But but uh, I think our experience demonstrates that for a company that is trying to do something both transformative to the society, but also, as Chris mentioned uh, earlier, something that is genuinely challenging and sort of hairy from the data protection point of view, my encouragement would be to be very proactive and very open um, and, and actually 
think of the sandbox as a way to work those issues out rather than as something uh, to stay away from if you're doing something truly um, truly daring with data that's that, that that's what I would recommend great and, and Chris I mean I would I would second all of that and and we always say to organizations if you are considering entering the sandbox come and talk to us informally um, we can provide guidance on how it works we can provide all the information that's on our website of course but but more than that, we can actually have a conversation with you about what it means in practice and how it will, how it will work. And and uh, I, I put it very simplistically: don't don't be scared of us. <laughs> come come and talk to us. Um, we we are a bit of the ICO that is set up to do this. We have governance and protections in place to make it work. So come and talk to us about it, and we'll see see what we can do. One thing I would say, and this is what another one of our earlier sandbox um, participants said to us, was that people joining the sandbox, it's, sandboxing is 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 kind of a contact sport. You, you have to be kind of both sides have to be prepared for positions to change and yeah. for things to be learnt. And that, that means that just on occasions, you, you might find that you don't get the answer that you want or that we need to change something that we think. Um, and going in, I think, with both sides having their eyes fully open to that is a really, really beneficial thing at the start. We definitely saw that with Future Flow. We saw it with Onfido. We've seen it with others as well. So I think if you get into that headspace, that's that's what the sandbox is about. Be prepared to have your opinions and your views, positions challenged, just as just as we as the regulator will need to as well. Yeah. Just, just because this is an audio podcast, we're just we're all nodding, but I just want to <laughs> yes. add that I, I very much agree with that because the fact that I'm nodding is probably not visible to the listeners. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, and no physical violence, obviously. Just no. <laughs> contact sport was challenge, intellectual um, challenge, and working through those issues that we all have every day as privacy professionals, you know, and what better way to talk through those than with, with the ICO directly? Amazing. Yeah. What it's synergy? Great. What about synergy? Good word. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If there are any last comments that you'd like to to share, Vadim or Chris? I think it's probably opportunity to plug the fact that we are are actually currently open to new applicants um, to our sandbox. We are... We one of the learnings we've taken from the last year um, is that we want to focus a little bit um, where we point our sandbox next, um, and we're really pointing it over the coming uh, few months on issues relating to age-appropriate design and children's privacy, um, and also um, supporting safe and effective data sharing. Both key priorities for our office, as you can as you can imagine. Um, so we are at the moment. There's information on our website, etc., um, on our social media about how to how to contact us. But we're particularly looking, and we do have a little bit of space in the sandbox at the moment uh, for potential new applicants. Great, so get your it. applications in, folks. Yeah, thank and you. Just, Chris. And I would just add to that quickly that uh, again, for uh, for for many startups out there who are considering this, but are perhaps challenged by the uh, by the restrictions, by the pandemic, etc., we've actually been very um, pleased and, and impressed with how flexible and um, and understanding the ICO is with has been with us uh, through this through the past six months because basically half of our sandbox was during the pandemic and uh, they've managed to make it work. We've managed to make it work. So please don't let the lockdown uh, stop you if this is something that you think will be valuable to you to the to the data product that you're designing. Thanks, Vadim. Yeah, a really, really good point there. So being flexible and being open and and empathic, I suppose, and uh, yes. understanding the, the situation. So, well, thank you so much um, 
to both of you and, and to Stuart as well. A really, really fascinating conversation and hopefully encouraging for all future participants in the sandbox as well. I would encourage everyone to, to have a look at the websites and we'll put the uh, information in the show notes as well. So thank you. Um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, you'll find our other podcasts, um, including that on the Onfido experience in the sandbox at Privacy Paths on the PLMB website or your usual place for downloading podcasts. So keep up to date by subscribing to Privacy Laws and Business International and UK Reports at privacylaws.com. So thanks for, t- for listening in today and thanks very much to our participants. Another great podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you.